Okay, so we've been talking about relationships. Last week we talked about the male and female relationship, uh, and we, we kind of got into uh, the reasons why. I, I have a theory, and it's not really just a theory. It's a real deal uh, that guys and girls can't be friends because God has established us each uniquely, uh, both male and female. We see it in the beginning of the scriptures. Uh, the image of God is distinctly represented in both male and female, and he's, he has created us to be drawn together so that in the unifying of one flesh, which is what God does in marriage, God is glorified. So the institution, if you will, uh, of marriage is a heavenly thing that God has created in order to glorify who he is. We're going to get into a lot more detail about that uh, this week and uh, in, in how that relationship works and what is that one flesh bonding? What's it called in the scriptures? And then how does it, uh, how does it glorify, uh, glorify God? But I, I did spend a moment and I won't do it again uh, on the fact that guys and girls uh, can't be friends. We, we do need to step away from that, uh, that trick. Uh, you need to honor one another. And, and when you end relationships, do not, <laughs> please do not tell that person, uh, that I just want to be friends. It doesn't work. Okay. So we also talked about Ephesians five and, and that's where we're going to spend all of our time today. So or most of our time today. So go to Ephesians five. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse, uh, in verse 22 here in just a moment. Um, and, uh, but we're going to, so we're going to spend a lot of our time there. We also talked last week about what Paul means when he says that uh, we shouldn't be unequally, uh, unequally yoked. Again, I'm not going to go into that, but all of this can be found. If you're going, man, this is the first time that I'm in here and I would love to hear, all this stuff can be found on the, uh, on the website, fhrevive.com. You can listen to podcasts, or if you just want a refresher, you can do that since I just don't have time to review much uh, this morning. We've got a lot of content to cover. So we're going to be in Ephesians 5, and we're going to start in verse 22. Now, I'm just going to read 10 verses. I, I don't want to chop this up too much. I'm going to read through 10 verses, and then we're, going to, uh, then we're going to talk about some things. So let's get started. Ephesians 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at verse 32. He finishes up this, uh, this train of thought with this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what he does here, the very, the, it's really important that we catch those last two verses, specifically verse 32. He says this is a profound mystery because what he's done is he spent the, the, the uh, starting in verse 22, he has spent that time talking about a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. He said, okay, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. He's talked about that dynamic that he finishes up by saying, this is a profound mystery, meaning 
that this relationship that he's describing, this marriage relationship that he's describing is not a natural thing. Are you with me? It's not a natural thing. It's not just something that, that naturally occurs. He said, this is a profound mystery, the way that this works. And this is uh, created after a heavenly reality of Christ and the church. Are you with me? So marriage is not in and of itself necessarily a human thing. This is not something that God just designed for us. Marriage is just a picture. It is the way that, uh, that we as, uh, as humans live in interaction, male and female, as a picture of a heavenly model, of a heavenly thing. And that heavenly thing is Christ and the church. So everything we gain from marriage, everything we understand about marriage, we also can understand and actually have a better and fuller picture of when we look at the relationship between Christ and the church. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that we are the bride. It means that we are the bride of Christ. He says it earlier in that, uh, in that passage that we are the bride of Christ and that Christ is the bridegroom. So I want you to go to Matthew 9. We're just going to look at this kind of uh, bridal paradigm that the scriptures speak about because we're going we're to get lost in marriage. We're going to view it in a human way if we don't first look at Christ and the church. You guys understand? Nod and go to Matthew 9. All right. Matthew 9, and we're just going to look at uh, a few times where this is uh, where this is referred to. Okay, so beginning uh, Matthew nine, look at verse fifteen. Now you've uh, I'm going to take just a snippet out of here for for a time, uh, but the conversation is between Jesus' disciples um, and and the disciples of John and 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 this interaction. So uh, look at verse fifteen. So, uh, well, actually go to 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so the question is about fasting, but listen to Jesus' response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So now we got to get context here. This is, a, this is a passage that is specifically about fasting, but what picture does Jesus draw? He draws the picture of this bridal paradigm. He, he refers to himself as the bridegroom and says, while I am with them, there's no fasting and mourning. Now he's talking about, uh, you got you to gotta see this passage through the Hebrew grid, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, here in just a moment when, when we talk about covenant. But basically what would happen is the bridegroom uh, would make a proposal and then he would leave, okay? He would leave for a period of time. And this is when there would be preparation, there would be fasting, there would be an awaiting for the return of the bridegroom. And he's saying, I'm here with them. That time of waiting is not yet coming. But there will be a time, he says, they will fast, they will wait, they will anticipate for my return when I, when I leave. Okay. So again, this is, this is talking about fasting, but Jesus draws the picture of the uh, the, the paradigm of the bridegroom. Okay, go to Revelation 19. It's in the very back of your Bible. Most of you probably know that. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. That's not a book. Maps is not a book of the Bible. <laughs> There's a whole section of Scripture here that is talking about uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
speaking of Jesus. But look at verse, uh, let's go to verse 15. No, I'm sorry, go to verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty uh, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, these are the true words of God. So what, what's happening here is John's getting a picture into what is to come and what is to come. So the culmination of all things is when Jesus is joined to his bride and he's speaking about it through the, uh, the analogy of a Hebrew wedding feast, right? So this, this would be absolutely in line with tradition that the bride would be joined to the bridegroom and there would be massive feast in terms of this wedding. And in this feast, in this heavenly picture, in this heavenly wedding, there's worship and adoration. And it says the bride has made herself ready. It's been given her to clothe herself in fine linen. She is ready for the wedding. And what's he speaking about? He's speaking about Christ and the church, the marriage supper of the lamb. We know Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. And this is speaking about uh, a day which will come where you and I, uh, and uh, according to, according to the scriptures, blessed are those who are invited to this wedding supper. You and I will be participants. If we are believers in Christ, we'll be participants in the marriage supper of the lamb when the bride and the bridegroom are joined together. Amen. Amen. Go to second Corinthians. Paul gets this. And so the, the view which he ministers in, so, so Paul is this very profound pastoral type figure, okay? He's, he's a, an evangelist, a minister of the gospel, but he gets things through this viewpoint. He understands the bridal paradigm. And so this is what he says about, uh, about the church. Go to, did I tell you a book, Second uh, Corinthians 11? I don't think I told you a chapter. All the paper turning tells me I did not tell you a chapter. <laughs> All right. Listen, listen to verse 2. We're just going to be real quick. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, why would he say that? Again, we're taking a small snippet here. This is a a letter of of encouragement, uh, and and this is a a very uh, pastoral-type letter. But why would he say those words? He's looking at the church and he's saying, look, my job is to help you to make yourself ready. My job is for us to make ourselves ready because the bridegroom is coming back for the bride. And this is a season of time where we are to present ourselves, to make ourselves ready to be presented to the bridegroom. And so if we don't view ourselves in that way, we're going to totally miss what we're in now. See, the scripture in Revelation 19 says it's been given us to be clothed in white linen, that we've made ourselves ready. Paul says, make yourselves ready. My, my job is to betroth you, meaning pre- present you to Christ uh, as a worthy bride. He uses the word uh, a pure virgin in Christ, spotless and ready, right, for, this, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what we're in. And so all of what we understand about marriage is framed in this massive context of Christ 
and the church. And this relationship between Christ and the church is bound in what the scripture calls a covenant. So this is where we're going to really dig in. So why, this is just a a deeper layer of why God is so concerned about marriage. God is so concerned about marriage, number one, because in general, we said, the, the bringing together of a man and woman, making them as one flesh glorifies God. The image of God distinctly represented in both male and female coming together glorifies God. The second reason that God is so deeply concerned about marriage is because when you make this connection, that it's about Christ and the church, then what's represented in marriage between a man and a woman, what's on the line is the display of what God's covenant grace actually looks like. See, the church and Christ, this union, this bonding together, is held together in an agreement that the scriptures call a covenant. We're going to look at what that means. But a covenant is exactly what happens between a man and a woman on the earth when they are joined together in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And God is so concerned about marriage because it represents his covenantal love and his covenantal grace of his people. Go to Genesis chapter 15. So we need to look at what a covenant is. Because if a covenant is true between Christ and the church, then it's also true between a man and a woman when they get married. So what in the world is covenant? Go to Genesis chapter 15 and we'll begin to understand this. Now you're going to see covenant all throughout the scriptures. You're going to see it referred to. You're going to see, in fact, a lot of times, if you're not looking for it, you're going to miss it because uh, when people make covenants, they just talk about the, uh, the details of the covenant. They don't say, I'm going to go make a covenant with Jessica. That's not written in the scripture. But all the details of, uh, of the interaction that we have in, in making the covenant will be there. And because we don't look through covenant lenses many times when we read the scripture, we'll miss it. But over and over and over again, there are covenants given in the scriptures. There's all different kinds of covenants. There's salt covenants. There's shoe covenants. There's the, the most intense type of covenant. The most binding type of covenant is a blood covenant. And we see this portrayed with God and Abraham. Now, God is going to, and we're going to read it. I want to give you good context here. But God's about to make covenant with Abraham. Now, uh, this is is huge because what God is doing here in this moment is he's setting apart a people unto himself to glorify him. So so go to Genesis 15. Are you already there? Good. Uh, We're going to read 21 verses, okay? Can you guys read 21 verses? All right, without looking at your phones? I'm just kidding. If you have one, put it down under your seat. Thanks. All right. I'm still mad. (laughs) Listen to this. Verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, "Uh, behold, you have given me no offspring uh, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans 
to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, we're going to stop there because if you're not careful, what you'll see there is Abraham questioning God. Is he questioning God? Not, not really. What he's saying is, God, you've said all of these things, but what is it that there will be together between us which will give assurance of these things to pass? This is not a a doubt, a faithless question. This is wanting to solidify the agreement between he and God. Because just a moment before, we know this isn't a faith question because in verse 6 it says he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is pushing for, for binding of God to these promises. Now, this is where, again, we would miss it if we weren't looking at covenant. Listen to God's response in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. So what happens is that God gives Abraham the instruction to create uh, a blood covenant. And basically what this would look like is that sacrifices would be made, the larger animals would be split in two, and they would, be, uh, they would create an aisleway. Notice he says that, that he left the, the birds as they, as they were. They were so small, but they would, be, they would be killed and put on either side, okay? So now what do you have if you, this is going to get violent and graphic, okay? So if you divide an animal in half, what do you think the result is going to be? What's going to be on the ground? Blood, Okay. Blood, and so they would split the animal in half. And what you have now is you have an aisleway that's totally and completely covered in blood. The two parties would then together walk through. So let's just say that this is the aisleway. The two parties would walk through one way, turn and walk through the other. Now, what are their feet covered in? The blood of the covenant. And what they're doing is, in essence, they're saying, okay, this is the agreement we're making, and this this is the procedure by which we will bind ourselves together. And in essence, it's saying this, if I walk away from my end of the deal, may it be to me as these animals. This is a covenant of life blood. The reason that blood is shed is because blood represents life, Right? That's why in the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, God doesn't allow them to be covered with fig leaves because no blood is shed. Something had to die in order for them to be clothed. And so he clothes them with the skin of an animal. Blood is required because blood is life. And so God basically tells Abram to set up this covenant. And so you can see in the scripture that he does it. He sacrifices the animals. He makes the aisleway. He does it and even stands guard. This is important to him. And so anybody ever seen roadkill, <laughs> right? You're driving down Texas highway and there's roadkill and who always accompanies roadkill? Buzzards. Buzzards. It's exactly what happens here. Abraham has made the sacrifices. He is waiting on God and he's waiting with such fervency that anytime that something comes to try and uh, dismantle this sacrifice, he's, he says he shoes away the birds of prey, right? He is guarding this moment. Now let's look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain. These are covenant words. He says, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a, smoke, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to him, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So if we read too quickly, we miss it. But what happens is that God puts a deep sleep on Abraham. He falls asleep. And and why is that a problem? Well, if Whitney and I are going to make a promise, a covenant, she's kind of an important part, right? If she dozes when it's time for us to make covenant, I'm left by myself, right? Difficult for us to make a promise when she's asleep. You with me? But God puts Abraham to sleep. He says, deep sleep falls on Abraham and God speaks to him about these promises. And then it says that covenant is made. Now I don't have time to go into all of this. We studied this uh, weeks back, but the, the burning pot and the smoking uh, represents Christ and the father and the son and the Holy Spirit it represents the, the Trinity passing through the covenant. Here's what's so cool about this, that God passed through the covenant alone while Abraham was totally asleep. Now, why would God do that? Why would God make a covenant with himself that is contingent on Abraham? Well, that's just the thing, that God didn't want to make a covenant that was contingent on Abraham. The covenant of God says that, Abraham, I know that you cannot hold up your end of the deal. I know that you could never be faithful enough to receive these promises that I have given. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a covenant by my own strength, by my own willingness to complete it, by my own power, by my own grace. I'm going to make covenant based on me and me alone, and I'm going to give you the promises of it, but I'm not going to hold you to the standard that it requires. That's called grace. And so God passes through covenant alone, and basically God assigns himself the entirety of the covenant. Now, Abraham's going to get the blessing of it as long as he believes and stands positioned in front of God to receive what God has given. He'll get the blessings of it, but the requirement is not Abraham's. It's God's only to fulfill. God walked through it alone. Now, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Why in the world is this important? (laughs) Well, we better understand blood covenant if we're going to understand marriage, because let me just tell you that marriage is a blood covenant. It is the most serious level of covenant that can be made. It's covenant made in front of God, so much so that the scripture says, what God has put together, let no man tear apart. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll get there in just a moment. I always tell you guys, and I get talking again, and then I don't make it. Do we have it on the screen, Zach? Cool. Look at verse 18. It's just real quick. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, listen, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
You're beginning to see maybe a picture of the cross and what actually happened. Jesus gives these strange words, and for time, I need to, I need to move through this quickly. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, he makes a covenant in the, in the context of Passover, and he takes the blood, and he says, this is the blood of the cup, right, and, and it, which, which will be poured out for you. He says, this is a new what? Come on, what's, what do we always say in communion? This is a new covenant in what? In my blood. This is a new covenant in my blood. When your salvation was in the balance, did God say, okay, I want you to come here, Whitney. I want you to, no, no, I don't mean it. I just, but I mean, you can come hang. Ethel did. So, right. So God doesn't say, come here. I've got a end of the deal. I need you to hold up and I'm going to hold up this cross thing. I'm going to do this cross thing. But as long as you'll do the right things, then salvation will be yours. Right. Is that the, that's the agreement that you made with God? Absolutely not. You didn't make that agreement with God. Jesus, just like God with Abraham, it was a picture of what is to come. Jesus walked through and made that covenant alone. You want to know the cross is the most lonely place that a man could ever be. Think about what occurred on the cross where his covenant blood was shed. He said it right before. He says, this is the blood which I will spill out. This is a new covenant I'm making with you. And and he went to the cross and he went there absolutely alone. Were his friends there? No, they'd betrayed him and run away. He was mocked and he was scorned by the authorities of that day. His government, it was absolutely injustice. He was killed without reason. It was injustice. So his government turned his back. His family and friends turned their back. And even in these moments on the cross, as he took on sin, Jesus utters these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus walked through and made covenant with you and with me by his blood absolutely alone. Here's the problem. I'm going to have to skip quite a bit, but the problem is that we still, by and large, see our marriage relationships as 50-50 partnerships. Now, I know that it was really fast. I know that we had to do a real quick snapshot. But what we've shown here is that when God makes covenant, he bases it on his power and his alone. It's not contingent on your behavior. When Christ made covenant with you, it was not contingent on your ability to perform. Scripture says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. In your worst state, as a rebel against God, Jesus reached out to make covenant with you by his blood. And we come into marriage, and because we don't see it through covenant, because we don't see these relationships through covenant, we still see it as a 50-50 agreement. I'm going to get married to this person, and if they hold up their end of the deal, and I hold up my end of the deal, this marriage will work. Friends, that's not a covenant. That's a partnership. God didn't call us to partnerships. He called us to covenants. And one of the things that I have to do and I get to do is as I encourage couples as they're going through premarital counseling, encourage them in what is about to come. I I tell them about this covenant. I tell them about the reality that there will be days for each of you where you will not be able to bring 50%. In this covenant agreement, and married people in the room, you can amen for your own self and not for your spouse, please. (laughs) But there are days when you wake up and you have, you have not the ability to bring 50% into that covenant. The max capacity that you can bring is maybe in the single digits. I've had those days. 
I've had those days where I'm totally and completely maybe in rebellion. Maybe I'm not in real communion with God. Maybe I'm in my flesh in a deep way. Maybe I'm set, maybe whatever. Who knows what's happening, but all I'm going to bring is 9%. Well, that would be tough in the, on that marriage if on that day where all I could bring was 9%. If Lindsay looked at me and said, well, I'm bringing 50, so that only gets us to 59. This marriage is going to struggle today. Covenant says, covenant says that on the day that I can only bear nine, she bears the rest. Covenant says that on the day that she can only bear a little bit, that I wake up and this covenant is not dependent on what she can bring, but it's dependent on the promises I made before the Lord. And I will bear the brunt of the entire covenant if need be. And here's the deal. This is the goodness of marriage. And this is why we must have marriage based in Christ. It's why it must be believers because it's a covenant and because you are required to remain in covenant. Guess what? On those days where she's got to bring, where I can only bring nine and she's got to bring the rest, how effective do you think that would be absent Christ? Do you think in her flesh she would be capable of bringing the rest of that covenant? The only way that marriages survive and bring any vitality, now I don't mean that, that all marriages aren't in Christ and in divorce, but they're, they're destined for so much more than just making it to the end. Marriages were never meant to just, you know, it's like you can give an example maybe of people who don't know Christ and they make it to the end of their lives and they stay married. Well, great. It was intended to glorify God. Right? Our marriages are, were meant to be so much more, but if we see them as 50-50 agreements, they will never do what they were intended to do. But if we'll base them in Christ, then we'll love the other person more than we love ourselves. We'll give to the other person more than we give to ourselves. And on the day where they're weak, uh, we will be strong, not because we have strength in us, but because of the strength of the one who is in us. When marriage is based in Christ, when that covenant is in Christ, it is his life, his fullness, his grace, his peace that comes through and serves our spouse. This is a covenant. And a covenant means that it's not a conditional relationship. Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve, after sin, noticed that they're naked? Does anybody know that they were walking around stark naked just every day and hanging out and loving it before sin? I mean, that, that's the reality. It was only in sin. It was only when for that first time they turned, they stopped looking at God and they turned and looked at themselves for the first time and they went, oh goodness, I'm naked. And they sought to cover themselves because the essence of sin is selfishness. There's no way that you can serve your spouse with the love and the fullness of Christ in your flesh. Because your flesh by nature only wants to seek and serve itself. And so as we receive Christ, we receive forgiveness of sin, we're restored back in a relationship with God. The fullness of the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. We now have the opportunity, the blessing to serve the people around us, not just our spouse, but our friends and our family, the people that are in context with us, with the love and fullness of Christ, because it's him that lives in us. And one of the things that we make couples do is they stand before, uh, before me, but more importantly, before God, one of the things that we say, do you promise to let the love and fullness of Christ live in you and through you as evidence of your relationship with whoever it is? 
It's part of the vows on that day because if we don't base marriage in the covenant relationship we have with God, then we will seek to serve each other with our own selfishness, with our own ability, and it'll be a 50-50 relationship and it will crumble. And if it doesn't crumble, it sure won't glorify God. Marriage is absolutely and completely a covenant. And the most exciting thing that maybe I'll get to say to you on the day you get married, not everybody, please don't everybody ask me to do their wedding. That would be too many weekends. <laughs> but but if, if I get that honor, one of the things that I'll get to say to you, and it's one of the most exciting things to look at a couple and say, is this. That today, you'll stand before me and all these witnesses, and you'll get married. You'll agree before God this covenant, but, and it'll be an exciting day, and you will think there is no greater day on the planet. I'm wearing that dress. The flowers are perfect. Whatever, I don't know, whatever else people think. <laughs> you'll think there could be no greater day. And I'll get to tell you that today, if you'll base your marriage in Christ, if this will be a covenant that represents Christ, today will be the day that you love each other the least. Why is that? Because he's endlessly deep. He's got more and more and more and more that he wants to give you. And if you'll base your marriage, if you'll base your relationship, listen to me, even if you'll base your friendships, in Christ, then today will be the day that you love your friends the least. Today will be the day that you love your spouse the least because anything that is given to Christ takes on his nature. If we love each other based on the love and fullness of Christ, then I can promise you that today my love for my wife is greater and stronger than it was yesterday. Not because I came up with more of it, but because God is endlessly deep. And the more that I give my relationship with Lindsay to him, the more love I have to give her. And it's not because I'm finding more love of God. It's because I'm realizing how much more love to give her. Because he is endlessly deep. And today will be the day that you love each other the least. Marriage is a covenant. And if we don't look at it through covenant eyes, everything else is totally skewed. Okay? Next week... For the next two weeks, we're going to talk about sex, okay? Just telling you. If you get uncomfortable with, like, sex words, I'm going to say sex a lot. <laughs> I'm going to talk about sex things. We're going to, we might, no, we won't sing. <laughs> I was going to sing, let's talk about, no, I won't do it. <laughs> but we're going to talk about sex. Because here's the deal. Because what's, what's going to happen is you're going to realize that sex becomes the bonding agent in a covenant relationship. And we've got to rightly understand sexual intimacy because I don't know if there's ever been a day where sex has been more perverted than today. And if you learn from what is being shouted out there, you will drastically misunderstand the blessing and the gift that God has given to a married covenant of sexual intimacy. So we're going to spend two weeks. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about what the right view is and what the wrong view is, okay? So that's the next two weeks. So again, like get your, get your okay with weird words in church clothes on, okay? Because <laughs> I'm going to say them. I'm going to say all the words you don't want me to say, okay? So we're, we're going to do that. God, help us to understand marriage. Help us to understand covenant. Pray blessing on the rest of our, uh, rest of our time in, the, in this series. And God, we just, man, we just pray that our relationships would glorify you. Pray that right now you would paint a brilliant picture of marriage and that, these, uh, that everybody that's, that's listening would seek you in their relationships, in all of their relationships, friendships, dating relationships, marriage relationships, that we would seek you and that you would be glorified in all of them. In Jesus' name, amen.